0: There comes a point in every time, every project, every work that you are doing when there is external opposition and you have to fight it. We saw that last week with Nehemiah. But sometimes the opponent you face is not without, it is within. Certain wrongs threaten to completely stop what's going on and in fact not only threaten to stop what's going on, but to leave you in worse position than you were when you started. And so the question we're going to consider this morning is how do we right the wrongs? Let me say this up front. The way to right a wrong is not to commit another wrong. Two wrongs do not make a right. The way to co- the, the way to face a past wrong is not to do a present wrong in the opposite direction. It doesn't work that way. That's just a lot more wrong. The way to fix a wrong is to stop wronging and to start writing. Does that make sense? I say that because it's our natural tendency as humans to want to get even, to get back, to make it happen the other way, to show them how it feels. Interestingly, the Bible paints us a different picture this morning we'll consider righting the wrongs as we look at Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah 5, uh, up to this point, the wall is about half built. There has been opposition from without and Nehemiah has, well, let's just put it this way. He he has so far handled the opposition quite well, uh, so much so to the point that even when the people are downcast and, and, and are ready to give up, he strengthens them. He fortifies them. He makes them capable of being able to face their opposition while still doing the work. And so now we've got people carrying stones with one hand with a sword in the other hand ready to defend on a moment's notice. we got people laying bricks while other folks are standing behind them with swords and and with with shields ready to protect, just in case of attack, we've got men that are ever vigilant, staying up all night in the city to guard the men that are doing the work that are resting now, so that they can continue the work. Up until this point, all everything that that has been faced by Nehemiah has been an external problem. But in chapter 5, we see the problems aren't just external, they are internal. And raise your hand if you've never faced an internal problem. Yeah, we all know this well, don't we? Stand with me as we read Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is God's word. And if you let it, it will change your life. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There are those. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Verse 4, and there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Pray with me. Father, when we see this wrong, no matter what form the wrong may take, may we take the right steps. May we right the wrongs instead of perpetrating them, instead of continuing them, instead of compounding them. May we instead walk in paths of righteousness and bring you glory. Help us in this time. Speak to us through your word in Christ's name. Amen. I want to um, uh, lay the scene for you and verses one through five help lay this out. So like I said, the wall is half-built. They're still working on it. There is a problem, though, that we haven't really been talking about because it really hasn't come to the fore of the text until now. If you are, it, how many of you, anybody uh, whose parents in World War II told you stories about how they may do during the war? Anybody live in World War II and saw it for yourself? Okay, I didn't think so. All right. The men are off at war. What are the women doing? More than that, they're doing everything. They're taking care of the house. They're taking care of the kids. They're working all day to provide some kind of income for the family. They are doing everything. When the men are off at war, the women are just stuck with everything else. And so so women, wives, you you see the posters of Rosie the Riveter. You know, we can do it. Those kinds of things. Uh, To encourage the women to keep up production. Because the women are, in part, producing things for the war. They're producing guns and they're producing, they're helping produce airplanes and they're producing ammunition and they're producing all this stuff. They're rationing what they get to make sure there's plenty of materials for the men at war so they can defeat the enemy and come home safe, right? Okay? This is what's going on in Nehemiah's day. Now it's not specifically a war going on, though there is the threat of war. It's a project. All the men are building this wall in Jerusalem. And they're not just building the wall and then coming home at night. Remember, in the last chapter, Nehemiah had to say, y'all don't need to be going home because that's an extra risk. Everybody needs to be staying in Jerusalem so that if if an attack comes at night, we're ready and we can defend ourselves and the wall and the city, right? So now here are husbands that are away from their wives for weeks at a time. And the wives are having to make do back home, but there's nobody working the fields. Maybe, maybe she can work some. Maybe maybe some. in some cases, kids are old enough that they're out in the fields working. Sometimes they're not really old enough, but we, we got to do it anyway. Some of y'all remember when you were wee little lads, farming with your parents, right? Some of y'all had that experience, didn't you? Like going out in the fields and doing that stuff, right? It's tough. Add to that the fact verse 3 tells us at the end that there's a famine. And we got even bigger problems because even when we can harvest, there's not enough to harvest. It's been dry. The rain hadn't been quite as good. The heat has been hotter than normal and the crops just aren't growing like they should be. And so you can imagine the financial predicament. I borrow money to plant fields so that I can have a harvest that will feed my family. And yeah, I've got to repay my creditors out of that harvest too. But what happens when the harvest ain't enough? Well, the creditors don't go without. It's my family that goes without. And even whatever harvest we have, we're not able to get quick enough because I'm busy building the wall and it's my wife that's back home trying to make it, make it work. Trying to get up enough just to pay off the bills. And so you have this problem. You've got some families that just don't have enough food. And and a big family in in Jewish life, I mean, every family was a big family, right? Children are a blessing from the Lord. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, the Psalms say. And so for the Jew, it wouldn't be a complaint about having a lot of kids, but it's a reality that, hey, we gotta feed all these folks. We've got this big family. We need food. And then there are some that are in bad enough financial straits that they're having to sell the farm. They're having to get the money from someone else just to eat. And the king ain't helping any. The tax burden's so heavy on this people. Some of them are mortgaging their land just to pay their taxes. I know some of y'all feel like that in April of every year, but it's not quite that bad usually around here. There it was. The tax burden was extremely heavy. We learn a little bit later in this chapter that Nehemiah's governor's allowance is 40 shekels of silver. Now, that may not mean much to you today, but imagine 40 people having to work and give their daily wages to one individual every single day. One man getting paid the worth of 40 workers. And you, and you can quickly understand that, that's just the governor's portion. That's not even the king's portion. This is a bad situation. And this has, this has the threat of possibly undoing everything. In fact, they're saying, look, we're about to have to sell our kids in this as slaves because there's nothing else we can do. In fact, some of them already have. It's so bad that we've already had to start selling children just to have money to eat, just to make sure that they can survive. Y'all, this is going to undo everything. It don't matter if you got a wall, if there's nothing and nobody to protect. This has the potential to ruin everything. Now, forget the opponents. They're always going to be there. They're going to be doing their thing. Nehemiah knows how to handle them anyway, but how do you handle it when a situation like this has arisen? Here's the problem. Well, look, look, go back to verse 1. James, pull verse 1 back up. By the way, thank you for filling in back there today, James. You're doing a great job so far. Notice what it says. There arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Now, not everything can be blamed on somebody. Famine is a famine. Nobody's to blame. There's a lack of food. It's not really anybody's fault. But this whole credit crunch is created by some who have taking advantage of those who have not. Let's just be real honest about the situation. This is the rich getting richer off the backs of the poor. What do you do when it's this kind of a circumstance? When when you got people in the community that are taking advantage of others, whether it's rich, poor, whatever the case may be, whether it's those who have knowledge and those who don't, whatever the case may be, what do you do when one group that's supposed to be helping their brothers, helping their neighbors, loving others as they love themselves, When they are instead taking advantage of them and driving them further and further and further in debt and in poverty and into slavery. What do you do? How do you right the wrong? I think, I think Nehemiah shows us the answer. I think if we, if we distill the whole chapter down into one sentence, we find that God's leader responds to wrongs by following and leading others to follow God's commands. That kind of a long sentence, but work it, work through it with me. God's leader responds to wrongs by following and leading others to follow God's commands. Here's the principle. You want to right the wrong. Here's what you do. You do what God has commanded of you and you lead others to do the same. So what has God commanded? Well, in the words of uh, of uh, a child that Augustine overheard, or over, overheard, excuse me, sorry, I'm going to get my words right in a minute here. Augustine was in a he, he was he was in a terrible constraint. He is he is mentally torn apart. He is wrestling with God. Uh, not quite submitted to him he wants to submit but there's part of his will that just won't he writes and, and 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 he's got this divided will that's fighting against himself and he's begging God for mercy and he's he's sitting on a bench in in uh, I guess the Roman version of a park and he is he is just distraught within himself and he hears these children uh, uh off somewhere just short distance away, can hear them yelling out while they're playing a game, take up and read, take up and read. He picks up one of his, one of the books that he has with him, one of the scrolls that's with him is copy part of God's word and he reads it. He says, I put it down. I did not read any further because I had no need to. That one, reading that one verse, just just set it in mind. So we're going to follow the advice that Augustine followed. We're going to take up and read. What does God actually say you do with the poor? What? Is, how does God say this is the way to handle the poor? Well, he gives us a couple. There's several different verses, but there's two, two big areas that I want us to look at. One is in Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy 15, 7 and 8 says, If among you, and this is a, a win, not an if, okay? God knows it's going to happen. But he's laying out the scenario. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor. Now, Jesus, what did Jesus say? He said, the poor you will always have with you, right? You're gonna have poor, okay? So this is not a question of if. This is an if that's like, let's, let's just for hypothetical sake, when you know good and well it's true. It's like when you, when you want to ask someone a question, but you, you don't want to admit that it's you who needs it, so you say, I have a friend who, And in all reality, you're you're the friend. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor, what do you do? In any of your towns, within your land that the Lord, your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Okay, what don't you do? You don't harden your heart. You don't shut your hand. What do you do? But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need whatever it may be. In other words, God says, if you have and he doesn't, give. Now he does say lend, right? So we can charge exorbitant interest rates, right? No. He says lend so we can make a little bit of profit on the backside, huh? No. No, this word lend literally means let him have it and he'll pay you back when he can. Just let him have it. The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the Lord loves a cheerful, Giver. In other words, the scriptural command is when someone's in need and you have it, let them have it. Now, there's there's another passage, Leviticus chapter 25. This one, a little more, a, a, a few more verses here, but it really plays this out. If your brother becomes poor, again, when, because there's, there's going to be some point where you're going to have a, a poor brother, a poor neighbor. There's somebody around you that's going to be poor. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him, though he were a stranger, as though, excuse me, he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Now, hospitality in the Jewish world in the ancient Near East in, in general had the highest expectations. You might be a complete and worthless piece of garbage otherwise, but when somebody needs a place to stay, you better be the greatest host known to mankind. The standard of hospitality was exceedingly high. You give them the best accommodations. You feed them the best food that you can give them. You treat them with the utmost respect and dignity. If you have a visitor come to your house, you roll out the red carpet for them. Everything is to be the very best you can. It's getting out the fine china. Doing that extra cleaning before they come. Wearing your best clothes to entertain them. Setting everything up just right getting rid of all of the mess and all the clutter and only the finest, best things out on display. You may even buy some new stuff just to make sure it looks extra special. (laughs) He says, you got a poor brother, you treat him with that level of hospitality. Verse 36, take no interest from him or profit. But fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. In other words, I've treated you this well. You really want to know how to do it? Watch what I did. I took you out of the house of slavery in Egypt and I brought you into your own land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I treated you with the utmost of hospitality. And so when there's a guest in your home, whether they are a poor brother or a sojourner does not matter. Whether they're a complete stranger or their family does not matter. You treat them with the greatest amount of dignity and the best way possible. You spare no expense for them. But he goes on. He says, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He talks about the year of Jubilee. This is every seventh year, all debts are completely erased. You got someone that owes you and it's to the point that's so bad where they got nothing else but themselves. You're not going to treat them like a slave. No, you're going to take care of them. You're going to care for them like a hired worker. You're going to care for them like a sojourner. Yeah, they're going to serve you, but you're going to make sure they're well taken care of. You're not just going to own them. You're going to help them. This isn't just, well, you know, it's for his own good that I've enslaved him. No, he says he's not going to be a slave. He's going to be a worker. You're going to hire him. You're going to say, you know what? Okay, all right. You need help. I'm going to help you. Yeah, you're going to have to work. You're going to have to do stuff, but I'm going to take good care of you because your brother's in need and you have. Take care of him. This is a totally different way of, than what was going on in Nehemiah's day. It's totally different. In fact, keep reading, uh, then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. You see the connection here? Because you fear God, you're going to care for your neighbor who is in need. This is the path forward. So when Nehemiah is looking at this situation and he's looking at all the wrongs being done by Jewish brothers to other Jewish brothers, he's saying, hey, we're not doing the law. We're not doing what God has commanded. So what does he do? He leads them to repent. Remember, God's leader, God's leader responds to wrongs by leading others By following God's commands, but also by leading others to follow God's commands. And the first step in that is to repent. Hey, you're doing wrong. Stop it. Right? That's the first step. If you if you want to correct a wrong, the first step is to stop wronging. (laughs) You really want to get it right? Stop doing the bad thing. Stop doing what you shouldn't be doing. And so that's the first step he takes. Verse six, I was very angry this year. This is the same phrase used of Sam Ballot at the beginning of verse of chapter four. And the same of, of all of the enemies that are mentioned in chapter four, verse, um, I think it's 13. Let me look real quick. Uh, no, seven, excuse me. Verse seven, chapter four, verse seven, when it lists all of these enemies that are going to attack, they're all very angry. It's that same phrase. There's a difference though. When they got very angry, they looked to attack the people of Israel. When Nehemiah gets very angry, he's looking to defend them. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself. What he means there is he seethed for a while and uh, had to calm himself down before he could react to this. By the way, that's okay. You should get a little bit mad when people are being mistreated, especially if you're the leader and it's on your watch. You should, you should get a little angry. Uh, but, but he takes care to handle this the right way. Look what he does. I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Do you see what's going on here? We're trying to buy back Israelites out of slavery from the nations, from the Gentiles, and you're turning around selling more of them. It's a revolving door. They were silent and could not find a word to say. Yeah, I bet. Funny how that happens. When you get shown you're wrong. First, you want to defend yourself, but when the case just grows and grows and grows, you suddenly realize, you know, this is right. And, And you get really quiet, don't you? That guilt starts to set in. So I said, the thing you were doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Ah, there it is. You see, the problem isn't just that you don't love your neighbor. The fear the, the fear of God is your problem. You don't have a fear of God. You've got nothing that drives your love for neighbor. So there's no love for neighbor. Now you think, well, how does fearing God drive our love for neighbor? Because when we fear God, it, it, it's a love of him. That enables us to love our neighbors. See, I can't love you and you can't love me without God loving us first. Seems like, seems like that's written somewhere. I don't know, maybe that should be some, maybe that should be written down somewhere. He says, what you're doing ain't good. Stop it. Shouldn't you fear God? Should you not walk, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Hey, you're just enabling those guys over there that are trying to attack us. You are the ones that are enabling them to attack all of us. Moreover, I and my brothers are lending the money. Again, lending not with interest in mind, but with I'll give it to you because you're in need. Don't worry about it. Whenever you can pay me back, it's fine. I've got plenty. Let us. There's a change. He goes from, you are doing wrong, we are doing right, let us abandon. He's not just pointing the finger saying, you're bad, you're terrible, you're wrong, you need to fix it. He says, let's do this together. Do you remember when, when the wall was broken down and he talks to the people and he says, hey, you know this, you know the condition we're in. Let us arise and build this wall. Nehemiah realizes that this is not just for them to do. It's for us to do together. He realizes this is, this is not just something that they need to do. He needs to be involved in it too. Now, is that because he's doing wrong? I don't think it's because he's doing wrong. But I think he realizes that part of the onus is on himself as leader to make sure that this is carried out, to make sure these people are cared for. And so he says, let us abandon this exacting of interest. Let's stop charging interest. Uh, but let's go further than that. Verse 11, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Hey, hey, give it all back. They need it. Give it back. When things are better, when we're not in a famine, when the home situations are better, when there's plenty, because there will be years of plenty that we can make sure you're taken care of. But right now they need. Don't close your hand to your brother. In other words, right the wrongs. So, verse 12. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. Don't you wish your mortgage company would say that? That bank you're paying the car note to. Wouldn't that be a great thing? Wouldn't that be a great letter? Dear so-and-so, we're happy to inform you that we are canceling all of your debts. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Imagine the freedom that would come from that letter. That right there is why this wall is successful. It's not successful just because there's a dynamic leader, a great vision. It's successful because people who are doing the wrong thing repent and do what's right. We will do as you say. Nehemiah says, that sounds great. Let's make it official. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. We're going to bring the priest involved. And then verse 13, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. What he does is he empties his pockets, he throws it all down, and he says, this right here is what I want. You see, because if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen to you. Now, raise your hands. How many of y'all like have empty pockets? Because you've got nothing left to put in them. Now, how many of you want empty pockets just because, yeah, she gives me all her stuff? That's what he does. He says, he says, so may the person who breaks this oath, may, may their garments, the folds be shaken out, may their pockets be empty, and may they know what it's like to have me. In other words, let's make this official. I love what you're saying. Let's do it. Let's do it. He calls them to repent. You see, you don't see the word repent in there, do you? Anybody see the word repent in that passage? Did anybody see the word repent? Was that actually written in the book? No. But that's exactly what repentance looks like. You see, repentance is when you're moving in one direction and you stop and you turn around and you go the other way. That's repentance. Repentance is when you stop the wrong and start doing the right. That's exactly what he calls them to do and they do it. But... There's more to do, because not only does he call them to repent, he realizes that a godly leader doesn't just tell other people what to do. A godly leader follows through himself. And so not only does he call them to repent, he sets them an example. Look at verses 14 and eight through 18. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily portion 40 shekels of silver. That's 40 days of work taken every single day. We did a little bit of math on the spot prices of silver. That turns out to be over $156,000 a year in today's rates. It's a nice little paycheck for a governor. I don't know what our governor makes. I don't, I don't think it's quite that high, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's, it's a decent salary. That's a, that's a pretty decent salary. And that's just food allowance, y'all. That's just food allowance. You see, the other governors before him, and there had been other governors before him, they really, really laid it heavy on these folks. Even their servants lorded it over the people. People were oppressed. Other Jews, the, officials of the government were oppressing them this was a bad situation end of verse 15 but I did not do so why not it was your allowance it's what the king allowed you to take did the king really care if Nehemiah got more or less than that not really as long as the king gets his money he didn't care he didn't care he was entitled to it just by nature of his position he could have he could have had all of the allowance that he he wanted to exact from the people but he says I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of God. You see, some things are so important that they even trump a prophet motive. And fear of God ought to be that one thing. We ought to love God so much that we're willing to give up our betterment of ourselves, our profit to do his will. Nehemiah sets the example. He does it himself. Uh, uh, verse 16, I also persevered in the work on this wall. And we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Not only is Nehemiah setting the example, but he's telling those closest to him, you're gonna be working too. You don't get to live the high life. I remember I had a, a, a boss that I worked for. He said, man, I ain't working on Sundays. I don't care what there is to do. I ain't coming in on Sundays. Now, the store was open on Sundays, and we, you know, he had no problem scheduling me most Sundays of the month. I got one weekend off and it was almost always somebody trying to call in to get me to come in for them. Uh, another leader. Um, he had no, he he wasn't going to do that. That just wasn't his thing. So he wasn't going to do it. This is not a leader like that. It's Nehemiah. He, he's a leader that's willing to go the extra mile himself. And now he'll, he'll demand you go that extra mile too. The man, when you see him working, I've got a boss now that Every now and then he'll come in. Things will be kind of hard. He just, he'll wash his hands, put on gloves and start, start working somewhere. What do you need? He'll, 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 he'll run up front and start helping. I've seen him wiping down tables in the dining room, welcoming guests as they come in. I've seen him, um, I haven't seen him breading, but I have seen one uh, uh, owner operator who, who was breading one day. He, he got on, he got on the raw chicken stuff and he started breading. And I'm thinking, you're the owner. You don't have to do this. He just wanted to. We needed the help. That's what he wanted to do. He, he just jumped in. Didn't matter. His wife probably mad that he smelled like raw chicken when he got home. It, oh, well, that's just part of it. That's the kind of leader that Nehemiah is. He's the kind of leader that's going to do the work himself and call you to do the work with him. He sets the example. He doesn't just say, go do as I say and not as I do. He says, come come on, work with me. Let's do this together. Not only that, moreover, there were at my table 150 men. Now, he's not taking any money for the food, but he's feeding 150 people. I don't imagine there were uh, uh, just 150 officials. Possibly, maybe, but I don't imagine there were. I think what he's doing is he's taking some officials. It says Jews and officials. I'm thinking he's taking some of the officials and he's taking some of the people and he's sitting them both down at the table and saying, let's eat. In fact, I can imagine him going to a part of the wall and saying, hey, dinner's on me tonight, guys. Y'all come y'all come sit at my table for dinner. Y'all are working hard. Man, this looks terrific. That's gay. That's beautiful work. Why don't, why don't, why don't y'all come meet with me tonight? Somebody's in need particular need. Hey, I got a spot for you. Come on. Paying out of his own pocket. This isn't just the guy that, that spent has the expense account to cover it. This is someone that says, I got you covered. Don't worry about it. And that was besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. That's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? Now as they're doing this, there there's folks from the outside that are coming in, coming in to help. Coming in to bring supplies, coming in to, to check out the work that's being done. Maybe maybe there were some cities that needed to be rebuilt, and they're coming to see how is how is Nehemiah doing it? Because man, we want to follow his example. He's setting an example. Child of God, you really want to right the wrongs? Follow God's commands, set an example, and bring others along with you. We got too much wrong going on around here, in our city, in our state in our nation, we got too much junk. The thing that set apart Christians in the early uh, days of Christianity after Christ had died and the apostles are leading the church, the thing that set apart Christianity that made it so different was the compassion that Christians had. Babies are lying in garbage heaps and Christians are the one adopting them and raising them and caring for them. People are sick. Pagan doctors are running like crazy from these Plagues that are going on. Christians are the ones running in to care for the sick. They're not keeping their distance and putting masks on their face and saying, get away from me, I don't want to get sick. They're the ones running straight in to take care of the lepers. The ones running straight in to take care of the plague-infested peoples. They're the ones that are doing the works of God, correcting the wrongs by doing the right. Where is that church? Where is that church? Writing the wrongs isn't just about commanding hell, fire, and brimstone down upon somebody who's doing wrong. Writing the wrongs is about doing the right thing to correct them. The end of verse 18, he says, he, he talks about all the expense that was done for him. And then he says, Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. He led by example. He served these people. If it was just a Bible story and it was just a good lesson and and just a good principle for us to follow, that would be great enough. We need that. We need that example. We need to see what it looks like in real life. The problem is that it's not just an example. It's also a command. 1 John 3, 17 says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If we truly love God, we will love neighbor. The two are inseparable. This morning, you might be one of the ones that's saying, You know, I love God, but I've been running away from those in need. I've been stingy toward those in need. I've been closing my hand toward those in need. I haven't been righting the wrongs. I've been perpetrating them.
1: Maybe you're one of the
0: ones that's actually doing someone else wrong. Or maybe you're just not helping. Whatever the case is, God calls us. This is my commandment, that you love one another. God is calling us to love our neighbors, to right the wrongs, to lead by example. God's leader responds to wrongs by following and leading others to follow God's commands. It's time that we do that. However, that needs to look for you. I, I'm going to let God apply it to your own heart because he's really good at that. He's really good at pinpointing that one area and saying, this is, this is why you need this message. I'm going to let him do that. But while he's doing that, I'm going to be up here at the front. Maybe. Maybe it's time for you to publicly commit. Hey, I haven't been doing this and I need to. I'll be here. Maybe it's time uh, uh, for you to, maybe it's time for you to join this church. Maybe it's time for you to commit your life to loving neighbor as God has loved you. Maybe you just need prayer. The altar's open, whatever the case may be. We're going to sing this song. You, you just do what God wants you to do. Pray with me. Father, we pray in this time that you would do your will. You would do your work. You would do it your way. You would get all the glory. God, help us to right the wrongs around us. Help us to follow your commands. to Do what you want us to do. And see our world change for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.